Ayo, Clive here, editor of Sticker Round. I am in the kitchen editing, so this is my laptop mic, hence why it sounds a bit rubbish, which is a nice segue into the fact that my mic on this episode sounds a bit rubbish because my f- phone, my mic broke, so I had to use my phone. Uh, and it's not as good as my mic. Um, also, this was recorded, this episode was recorded about three weeks ago. I've been very busy and just haven't got to um, to edit in it. So apologies about that. Hopefully you still enjoy it. Enjoy your sentence. Toodles. Get your head out of the clouds. Get your feet back on the ground. Get stuck into pop culture. Weird sticker around. Hello there, and welcome to Stick Around. The podcast that comes to you from isolation. Sponsored by Matey Bath Formula. Or when you finish with your calisthenics, take a bath with Matey. It's hypoallergenic. <laughs> I used to love a Matey Bath. Um, very surprised to hear that they still exist, and by, by the looks of things, uh, it's going well. Um... What was it you were telling me, Michael, about this new uh, this new range of pirate they've got going? Well, I um, I, I read on social media that they were uh, they were going to uh, diversify by uh, introducing a Somali pirate. Uh, what was the reaction on social media, Michael? Uh, general outrage, right, <laughs> from all angles. Yes. Yeah. Look, let's just keep so, some some of it seemingly confected. Yeah, um, <laughs> let's keep it simple. Um, you know, this pirate is a normal um, Brexit-loving, gammon-eating white pirate. You know, um, don't mix it up. There are actually there are three pirates. Um, oh, are there? Now. Max, Molly, and Pegleg are the uh, pirates on Umatey Bath. Ah, I'm not sure about Molly and Max being pirates. They don't sound pirate piratey enough. Pegleg, it's already quite diverse. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, you're here for Stick Around, episode... Mm, uh, not sure. Um, 161. 161. Is <laughs> uh, that a guess? No, no, that is the actual thing I've got written here. <laughs> impressive, impressive. Um, the man you've just discovered... Uh, disco- <laughs> discovered? Yeah, the man you've just heard talking <laughs> about matey and uh, diversity is Michael Johnson. My two expert subjects, to be honest. And the man you've just heard doing an excellent pirate impression is Clive Fisher. Hi. And I am Alex Wayne. Um, We're back after a little break. Um, Clive, who you've heard, you know, the first track of his new album there, uh, has been off (laughs) recording. Um, How's it going, Clive? Um, I mean, that song's been causing me endless bother. Just can't get the pirate accent right. (laughs) People are going to be saying it's not authentic, and I really don't want that. Well, it's a it's a Swiss pirate. Um, nobody knows what. The, yeah, that's you know what they sounded like. Um, <laughs> the Swiss Lake Pirates. Yeah, <laughs> um, one of those guys. It's going to be quite a um, quite a bit of a panel show this week because we're all going to be discussing one album. Um, it's been out a while actually, but um, it's taken a while for us to all listen to. Very exciting. Um, did this album, without going into spoilers, Michael, mm-hmm. did this album have, well, you don't have to say if you liked it or not, did it give you as much of a reaction as you thought it would? 
Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Okay. Well, without further ado, Michael, will you reveal what that album is? I will. It's uh, Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And I've just realised that it's quite, a, in many ways, this is a serious album, which we'll get into, but I've just realised, not to undermine it, but I've just realised that if you wanted, you could imagine the title being delivered in a sort of Dudley Boys style. Like, Devon, fetch the bolt cutters. <laughs> <laughs> you could imagine and you that, could. Yeah. Um, some of the lyrics of this um, probably wouldn't fit with the, <laughs> with no, with the Dudley not. Boys. Maybe just that line. <laughs> yeah, that, that is accurate, yeah. Okay, let's let's go. So this this um, this is Apple's uh, fifth album only. Um, she's taken to releasing albums fairly sparingly, and they've become quite big because she's always be- had quite a profile as an artist. They've become basically event albums. Uh, this is the first for eight years since uh, the Idler Wheel in two thousand and twelve. And we might as well say straight off, and we've we've mentioned this before on the podcast, that this album is essentially, it's been heavily um, acclaimed critically, but it's basically inextricable from the fact that it was the first album in 10 years to get the, um, the very rare Perfect 10 score from Pitchfork on its initial release. The previous album to get that was uh, 10 years earlier, Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, the most critically acclaimed album of the 21st century. Um, and Pitchfork, I remember <coughs> being, being uh, blindsided by that score when I first saw it, and also by their blurb, which basically insinuated that this was um, was unlike any other music ever recorded, really, which is a very big thing to claim. Uh, so let's get into that and unpack a bit of that, because that's quite hard to imagine when you first read it. Uh, genre-wise, the album really defies classification, um, but there are elements of various genres involved, I think most prominently the there's a lot of industrial rhythm on this album and it's uh, very reminiscent of the industrial-tinged barnyard blues of Tom Waits' Bone Machine album, above all, I would say. Uh, there's a, it's heavily percussion-focused and the percussion sound is very ramshackle. It's based heavily around um, found objects and items that were employed to create the sound of the album. And nobody is, I, that I've come across has described that uh, side of the album better than Apple herself, who described uh, the album as containing percussion orchestras, which is really very much the flavour of what you hear when you listen to it. The album makes a lot of use of tonal counterpoint. The subject matter is generally very heavy, but the melodies are usually rather upbeat. The songs feel quite upbeat. It's rooted equally in pop and experimental music and is quite subversive in in both regards in the way it employs those against each other there's a liberation theme to the album the title is a quote from the tv show the fall uh where i believe um when a female murder victim is uh found uh, locked away the line fetch the bolt cutters is used and that really cuts straight to the heart of some of the subject matter on this album. And Apple described the uh, the idea of the use of the title herself as um, fetch the fucking bolt cutters and get yourself out of the situation you're in. So, as I say, um, it's really it's really a, an album about uh, liberty and freedom in many ways. The lyrics are undoubtedly worthy of literary and psychological analysis, 
Uh, they find Apple digging over relation, past relationships and their historical effects on her psyche. Uh, I'd say that the themes and the music combined evoke quite a punk spirit, or perhaps they're more specifically analogous to late 1970s New York and the various music scenes going on there, from the punk poetry of Patti Smith to post-punk and even No Wave to an extent. Uh, besides percussion, some of the dominant instruments are Apple's Rolling Thunder piano and the very earthy, very jazzy uh, bass guitar of Sebastian Steinberg. Uh, Apple also mentioned the use of uh, her home as an instrument, the actual house itself. Uh, the album was chiefly recorded at her Venice Beach house and studio, and I think that homely feel does come across very strongly, uh, not least in the various appearances that are scattered throughout the album of her dogs barking randomly interspersed into songs, which I quite liked. Uh, and that also speaks to a theme of confinement, as does the title and the entire theme, and it's yet another album that critics have obviously read uh, a lot into regarding its relationship to the COVID-19 pandemic on that basis. Getting to the songs themselves, they are unforgettable, chiefly, and I think the secret is all in the construction. I'm not usually one for going back to you know extended releases of classic albums, seeing how songs developed, I'm, I'm, personally, I'm usually more interested in the finished product. But I think in this case, it says it all that I would be quite fascinated to see how these songs were built up. Um, the, the construction of these songs would be very interesting. And I know Apple hinted herself that she did at times think she'd, she was in the process of creating something unrecordable. Uh, and I think that that is quite telling in terms of interest in exactly how these songs came to be. She is a, f a fan of theatrical set pieces, whether they be musical or vocal. And the vocal structure of this album is very entertaining. Uh, there's a lot of raspy elucidation. There's no waste of space. Uh, even where there is space, it's employed very effectively. It's unpredictable and unchained, and that relates to the entire mood of defiance of the album and being outspoken. Uh, and I would compare some of that delivery uh, and the way it's structured to hip-hop, really. Uh, lyrically, the album is really about the complexity of social relationships with a major focus on gender, and it relates more to relationships with other women than previous work from Apple. And the themes are e exemplified strongly by various snapshots uh, lyrically throughout the album. Uh, I'd say there's almost there's a lot of single-line mini-manifestos on this album that really sum up its spirit. The opening track, I Want You To Love Me, uh, features one of those. Blast the music, bang it, bite it, bruise it, which really typifies the pounding nature of this album's energy. Uh, the track Shamika, with the central line Shamika said I had potential, is it refers to this mysterious character uh, from Apple School Days who uh, encouraged her on that basis while she was dealing with a lot of... Uh, bullying from other girls and damage to her self-confidence as a result, something I'd relate directly to. Uh, under the Table is one of the uh, most engaging tracks on the album. Uh, Kick me under the table all that you want, I won't shut up, which really speaks to everything that I've just discussed about themes on the record, refusal to be silenced, and there's a lot of humour on this album, despite the fact that it's dealing with, uh, at times, some dark stuff, some complex stuff. Uh, and this this track is a perfect example of how entertaining the album can be. 
The title track is also a memorable one, which quotes Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, one of the best songs about gender equality ever written. Uh, Relay is where the album really begins to explore some of these complicated social dynamics with its uh, its chorus quote, Evil is a relay spot when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. So a lot of talk about uh, being the bigger person, not getting sucked into some of the relationship dynamics that feel almost set out for us. Uh, another example of a quote from the track which sums that up, I know if I hate you for hating me, I will have entered the endless race. So it's essentially a appeal for more compassion in the world. Uh, there's a ton of empathy involved in this album, but it still finds time, this track, to turn the guns on social media. I resent you presenting your life like a fucking propaganda brochure. Um, and the track is also a good example of the influence of chant vocals and uh, cheerleader-style chants throughout the album, which I think is quite interesting because it sort of takes some of that takes some of the uh, almost the tools that you might associate with some of those bullies that were referred to and subverts that, uses it back. Newspaper and Ladies are two central tracks with very similar themes, which are men turning women against each other. Um, uh, Ladies is specifically about the dynamic between exes of the same men and um, Apple sort of writes about refusing to be in competition with those people in the way that men often want. Uh, a lot of critics identified ladies as the centrepiece of the album. Heavy Balloon deals with depression and is an incredible track with a smoky, fiery barroom atmosphere. And once you've once you've heard the track, you're definitely going to be singing, I spread like strawberries, I clam like peas and beans. One of the most unforgettable little hooks of the album. Uh, and the last three tracks make excellent and ear-opening use of escalating, morphing, vocal rhythms. Uh, For Her is a multi-part track, which is probably the album's most astonishing. Uh, it opens with a ferocious section of chanting, but it slows down as it reaches what is the record's most stunning moment, um, when Apple really makes the line, You raped me in the same bed your daughter was born in, sound almost jaunty with the way she delivers it. Uh, and this part of the song was written uh, at least partly in relation to Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court in the US. And as the upcoming confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the same court reminds us, uh, the relationship between the United States and the bodies of its women is tragically and sadly unsettled. The album is essentially an elixir. People who The people who most need to hear this album never will hear it. I think we all know that. Um, and in the same way that history is already written and the participants are already selected ahead of time, we all play these sort of social games that are being referred to throughout throughout the album. Very few of us remove ourselves completely from the romantic chessboard, for example. And that's what makes true emancipation so difficult to envision and let alone achieve. And for me, Fetch the Bolt Cutters is an album about a person with a lot of decency and a lot of understanding, daring to strive and dream for a better world, telling the story of that world as seen through her eyes, of, of far less to tolerable and often much more easily hateable people who are utterly ignorant of the forces of capital, media and so-called society arrayed against them and the way that those, those forces influence their actions and behaviour. And it, you can you get the sense from listening to the, this album that it's taken Apple a whole life so far to gain the understanding that she boldly shares with us uh, here 
out of what is obviously an unmistakable and unshakable necessity. The music has to be fit to soundtrack all of that, and this is structurally and sonically as fluent, exciting, unconstrained and dynamic an album as you're going to find out there. And that's why it lives up to the hype as featuring an unprecedented musical language, because whether it is humorous, angry, self-righteous or loving, which are all qualities embodied in it, you know, it, it, it nonetheless always has the music to match that. I think that's the important thing to note about it. And on that basis, it's simply an essential and marvellous listen. Um, undoubtedly one of the strongest albums of the year to date. It will be a lot of people's top album of the year come the end of the year, undoubtedly. And so far, it's my number two, not to give away anything. So still still, still an album to talk about ahead of this when the time's right. But yeah, that's my take on it. Fantastic. Um, Clive, anything you would like to add to that? I'm sure there is. <laughs> I'm mean, very intrigued that it's number two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll uh, happily spoil that it's currently my number one, although I do have a lot of um, other albums to, to get through, so who knows whether it'll be there at the end. Um, I, I wrote a little bit as well, which isn't anywhere near as long or eloquent as what Mike's writ- Michael's written, but um, I'll read it out now and then I'll go into a bit more what some of the stuff that Michael pointed out. Um, so... Th- to me, the album feels immediate. It's a lot of its ideas are really spur of the moment, unpolished, kind of full of fizz and life, and also kind of mysterious. The like innovative percussion that Michael's already mentioned, which kind of seems to come from anything and everything lying around Apple's house, uh, makes it sound quite unlike anything else. Without, um, I think it's the kind of thing that could easily make an album sound a bit twee, uh, and I don't think it does here. Um, the rattles and taps kind of march gently along on the album's title track is a good example of this. Um, and as Fiona flows into the song's understated chorus, you kind of get the feeling that you're listening to something timeless. Um, you know, I got the kind of uh, a similar thing as when I first listened to Nina Simone, which is no, uh, <laughs> which is the highest compliment I can pay any music really. Um, and like her vocals are really intimate throughout because of. There's, there's no real reverb on them, which um, essentially, for those who don't know, like the added sort of echo that you get on most um, vocals, um, which is makes it kind of feel like it's right in your ear when you listen to it in headphones, which is how I listen to most stuff, um, which Apple says is due to her lack of proficiency with garage band, which is I thought was interesting, uh, which is what she recorded most of the album on. But as kind of with many sponta- spontaneous eventualities, it turns out to be a masterstroke, I think, and a large reason for the album's unique sound. Of course, like this would never work if Apple's voice couldn't stand on its own as well as it does. Uh, her vocals have a, a kind of power variety and a, like a tunefulness within her range, which, you know, she doesn't have a massive range at all. Um, but within it she's very good and that it doesn't require any kind of effects to mask imperfections uh, whereas often if you i think if you heard a lot of vocalists vocals without the reverb on you'd be like oh god it sounds horrible <laughs> uh, it's actually quite uh, weird sometimes and often that's just because you're not used to it you're used to hearing them with the added um like reverb on top uh, it might not be that their vocals are necessarily bad without it but um you're kind of used to that extra sheen and i don't feel that's absolutely not needed here um on under the table which features i think probably the album's catchiest chorus she kind of gets angrier and angrier throughout and it's i think it's a really good 
um, kind of show of that vocal that I've been talking about at the start she's kind of calmly singing kick, kick me under the table all you want I won't shut up as Michael said by the end of the song she's growling it um, and it's very much yeah. her vocals that kind of along with the the percussive backing kind of gets more more and more builds up more and more and gets more and more kind of chaotic um, and that those two things really help to sort of make the track get angrier and angrier um, so yeah, I, I, to me, Fetch the Bolt Cutters is an album of creative confidence, one where Fiona's kind of rarely stopped herself and gone, nah, this sounds like a bad idea, but kind of just followed a song's path to completion, regardless of how unconventional or it might sound to begin with. Um, and what results to me is The Rarest of Beasts, an album as u- unique as herself, using music that's become that's come before only as smatterings of influence, while never turning them into a template. Um, and put simply, it's groundbreaking, I'd say. Um, it's. Uh, uh, I've not actually read Pitchfork's review. I knew they gave it a ten, uh, but <laughs> I would agree that it doesn't really sound like anything else. Um, and the the primary reasons for that, I think, are the, the the way the vocals are recorded being quite immediate, the the really really inventive percussion, uh, which I think fits perfectly, and the fact that she does it. There's this very spontaneous structure to the songs. Like you can tell, she's probably figured out what she's going to sing but not really figured out how she's going to sing it uh, and probably just tried it loads of different times and then picked one that works um, which is not dissimilar possibly to some of uh, Dylan's recording methods in the 60s and certainly and also um, one of my favourite albums Astral Weeks by Van Morrison I believe was recorded in a similar kind of way um, where he had lots of ideas but hadn't really figured out how he was going to do it and then he'd just perform with this you know stupidly talented jazz band <laughs> backing him um, and, and, and end up with incredible results uh, that felt very kind of immediate because they weren't they did, you didn't get that feeling I think a song can get tired if you do it 50 times uh, and perfect it it sounds that can sound like I think it's easier for it to sound more sort of uh, accessibly good uh, but it does lose something and often my favourite albums are a bit more spontaneous and stuff like you know I really love Guided by Voices and that, that's the band that I'd put into that category as well that a lot of their songs you like they could easily have fleshed them out and made them into three minute radio hits uh, but there's something more to them because they're not that <laughs> and they're just the, the initial genius idea kind of um, put down and the thing I've mentioned that Michael brought up was it Sebastian Steinberg you said who does the bass Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think he's a really big part of it too. And I think, I think it sounds like he's playing the double bass to me, but I don't know enough about um, bass to, I think <laughs> to there tell. Is, yeah, I think there is some of that involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just got a very, like you say, very jazzy feel, and gives it a bit of. Yeah, I was getting that quite a bit of a classic '60s jazz feel, uh, which I thought was great, and something that you don't see that much anymore. Um, so yeah, overall, I just think it's a, a great, great album, and like I say, it's currently my number one. I th- yeah, very well, very well put, Clive. And I think that that think that works so well because nothing else about the album feels jazzy. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's a, but it, yeah, it's another thing that's just quite unique. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, another feature of it. Yeah, totally. I think um, my thoughts. I can't really add too much to what you've said. Um, I, w- I definitely, if nobody else has had, would have highlighted for her as a track, and in particular the line that you mentioned. Um, you, yeah. you got it spot on, Michael, when you said she makes it sound jaunty. It's, I think it's the, I think it's the lyrics before, before it that kind of set it up, almost like yeah. it's a gag. Um, I think I mentioned this yeah. to you before. I find a lot of the way she performs quite theatrical. 
um, and quite varied. And I, I've I've seen it read that her musical style borders on the avant-garde, which I'll be frankly honest, I have no idea what that means in musical terms, but um, she's like nothing else um, I've heard. And this is the only Fiona Apple I have heard. Um, I think, to be honest with you, uh, the first time I listened to it, I knew I was going to like it from the opening track. Um, in fact, that might be my favourite from, from the album as well. I Want You To Love Me. I found it quite dreamy and uh, quite mournful. Um, but also, like every track on the album, quite assertive. Um, it feels like, as much as Apple's quite keen to put her vulnerabilities out there, she's she's almost past them in as many respects. Um, I, fa- I thought as well that dis- despite, as we mentioned, the heavy subject matter and um, the you know the varied you know intellectual kind of musical style on. You know, the we can see the 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 pop element to this that I wasn't expecting, and um, I, I actually thought it stood up more when I listened to it for the fourth time, which is this morning. Um, this would be so far my joint top album. Although I must add that it's only the sixth al- new album I've listened to this year. Um, Amazingly, I listened to this before you, albeit sort of on your recommendation, Michael, but uh, an unusual one. Yeah, well, I waited for the CD release, as, as always, because I'm so cool like that. Um, <laughs> CD <but> yeah. hipster. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I think that I think you touched on something there, because there is an av- I think there is an avant-garde approach to the songwriting, but it's, it's very accessible, this album. I, I really wouldn't consider it to not be. Yeah. I think that was um, that was what I was stumbling. What makes it exciting, I think. I think that was what I was stumbling over when I was calling it poppy. Poppy's maybe not the right word, but um, in some respects, it definitely is. I mean, uh, but it, it's got more of a mixture of stuff going on that makes it so sort of energetic and entertaining. I think. I think if you flipped through the ra- r- the radio and you heard you stuck stopped upon one of Fiona Apple's songs, uh, but you weren't necessarily into this kind of music, I don't think you'd switch off. I think you'd give it a listen still because. It it hooks you in. Um, there are there's a style to this that um, is not it's not in any way trying to alienate anybody's tastes, albeit while maintaining yeah. its integrity. Um, no, it's not pretentious. Is no, it? not at all. No, which I don't mind, but this this definitely isn't pretentious. Um, since since you gave some context, Alex, I might as well do the same. This I've got this ranked at two out of around thirty so far for me. Right. Okay. Well, so, I think I know what you've got at number one, but I'm not. I'm, don't spoil it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. You do because I did. I did tell you last week. Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. I'll save, I'll save that for later. Very, very, very interesting. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm not. Sure. I've got some ideas, but I'm not sure what number one will be. It's an album I mentioned on here when I first listened to it, but I've since listened to it way more than that. So yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, we'll hold that over his head. Um, maybe spoil it later. Um, let's move on from a great album. I, I know you had something else you wanted to briefly talk about, Michael. Yeah, I can do that now, yeah. Um, well, I've just a couple of other things I've been listening to. Um, 
Two things I was going to mention that are both Canadian, as it happens. Okay. Uh, been listening a lot to Japan Droids, um, and I've been mostly listening to um, their their um, their compilation of their first two EPs, no singles, uh, and that is that's uh, sort of filthy garage rock, um, very raw, um, but but uh, very thrilling also. Uh, a real mixture of stuff on there, including an excellent McCluskey cover. I know McCluskey are a band we've mentioned before on the podcast. A very interesting band. Uh, so that, that's, but then, they, I mean, their, their debut album is post nothing, but I've mostly been listening to the follow up to that Celebration Rock, which is a much cleaner, uh, a huge triumphant album, a great drinking album. Um, and it doesn't make any bones about that. Uh, and it sort of blends uh, punk influence with. Uh, at the huge heart of Bruce Springsteen, which I know we all we all love his music. Uh, excellent blend of those two things, uh, and that's really emerged as a record I didn't really know much about, but it's, I think it's it's probably up there for the 2010s at this point for me. I've been listening to it pretty much non-stop recently. Um, the other thing I've been listening to that is Canadian is an album I know I talked about on the podcast years ago, uh, I always thought it was hugely underrated, a, a hidden gem of an album in terms of indie rock. And I recently found out that uh, the music publication Coke Machine Glow uh, ranked it as the best album of the 2010s, which uh, I didn't know about. But that surprised me, but not in a bad way. I was pleasantly surprised to see someone give it that much acclaim because I've always loved this album. And that's uh, Public Strain by Women. Uh, they went on to... Um, Reemerges the band uh, Viet Cong, and then after the name controversy, they changed their name to Preoccupations. Uh, so they've had various incarnations, but um, this album, uh, when they were known as Women, is an excellent album, very post punk influenced. Uh, there's some experimental stuff on there, almost verges towards music, co- music co- concrete at, at certain points. Uh, but it's largely characterised by sparkling post-rocky guitar lines, uh, driving bass, the same sort of sounds that they'd come to be um, come to be known for later. Although I think they later added more synths. Uh, but this is a very this is also raw in its own way, uh, not dirty like the Japan Droids music that I mentioned. But um, I think it's much more. It's sort of a dusty atmosphere. I always think. Um, and very much a mystery to it. And it's also got one, it's got a, a gorgeous uh, sepia-tinted uh, co- cover of Driving Snow that is one of those, it's one of those album covers that really, it really sums up the sound of the music contained within, which I love. I love when acts manage to pull that off and make exactly the right artwork selection. It's definitely one of those. Uh, so just something I listen, re-listened to after I found out about it, their Coke Machine Glow ranking it that highly. And uh, it stands up for me. Um, it's always been a, a hidden gem of a record, as I said, that uh, people should check out. I was listening to it. Um, what was the name of the, the Japan Droids album again? Oh, Celebration Rock. Celebration Rock. We were listening to this the other day. Um, this is shortly before um, we are no longer allowed to mix uh, in other people's homes if you're in a, yeah. t- uh, a Tier 2 um part of the country, which in many ways uh, Teesside has always been a tier two part of the country. Whoa, Wait. look at that Look at that political incitement. Um, <laughs> Clive, yeah, are you... You get, you, get a job, you get a job working for private eye. I could definitely get a job writing for, uh, writing for Spitting Image. Have you seen the shit that they've been putting out? Honestly. Well, who, who, I mean, I'm surprised that anyone expected that to be good. 
bad enough, but there you go. Honestly, it's like your dad trying to make a comeback at nightclubbing. It's just not going to happen, <laughs> is it? <laughs> Fucking awful. Um, Clive, um, I think you're a fan of Japan droids, if I'm not wrong. Uh, I, I, I lost you there. Al. <laughs> said something about Japan droids. I'm assuming you're asking me whether I've heard of them or whether I'm a fan. Uh, well, correct. I, I, I was speculating that you are a fan. Um, you would be speculating absolutely correctly. Yeah, I love Japan droids. They're a band. Actually, that I've listened to more of the later stuff than the early stuff. So I need to go and listen to the uh, album, the singles. No singles, is it called? Uh, Mike yeah, said? yeah, that's right. It's surprising. It surprised me how how much different it is. Really, uh, it's it's like mm. I said, the the um, celebration rock is way cleaner compared to it. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, it's just celebration rock is just such as as I hinted at. It's just such a massive sort of celebratory, as the clue is in the title, album. Uh, and the track, the house that heaven built, was uh, it won a public poll to be the um, sort of the official song, the entrance music of the Vancouver Canucks NHL team, um, which I think doesn't happen by accident. So no, it doesn't. Um, so yeah, I definitely need to listen to more of them. But I love what I've heard, and I'm also hoping to once I get the attic sorted and have a bit of a studio set up, I'm hoping to try and experiment a bit with like just electric guitar and drums, uh, with me playing both and. Shouting a bit and nice. uh, doing that kind of thing, so we'll see if anything comes of that. Um, but certainly, they'll be one of the big influences <laughs> because the, the the thing I love about the most is they're just brimming with energy. Um, I think I was talking to you about this, Michael, on WhatsApp. Yeah, um, yeah, they're just uh, so much energy. They like, remind me a little bit of um, oh, why am I blanking on them now? They their band. They don't. They're an instrumental band. Um, oh, Lightning. Bolt. Oh yeah, light, lightning bolt. Yeah. Oh, I thought you. Ma- yeah. I thought you meant the lightning seeds. Um. No, not the lightning <laughs> seeds. <laughs> uh, yeah, they remind me a little bit of lightning bolt in a weird way. They're obviously very different, but um, something about. Them. I think it's the energy levels, maybe. Um, but yeah, and I also I uh, need to check out this this women album. I've not heard of it. I'm just looking out oh, yeah. the cover. I love the cover. Um, you saying it sounds like the cover is making me want to check it out immediately. So yeah, check it out. <laughs> I will add it to the list. I've it's not listened to anything by uh, Viet Cong or whatever they're called now, Preoccupations. Yeah. Oh, the Viet Cong album's good, but I, I didn't like it as much as Public Strain. Public Strain's got a sort of unique quality to it, I think. Ah, oh, cool. Oh. I just want to... Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Lightning Bolt because they are uh, they're a bass and guitar uh, duo. Um, Japan droids are the reverse. They, I think they basically don't use any bass, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but also Death From Above 1979 are also obviously a bass and uh, drums only duo Canadian and Japan Droids the no single compilation kind of put me in mind of them uh, it's not it's not as dance punky as Death From Above 1979 but their debut album You're A Woman I'm A Machine is one of my most listened to albums ever um, so yeah don't know if it's something in the water up in uh, the Great White North but they seem to do this sort of thing quite well what what is it with them and cutting out a common instrument? Uh, just, is that just part of the culture? <laughs> get rid of it. It's difficult getting enough people together, so they're just like, <laughs> what we just might do. There's two of us, that's enough. Well, you know, it's, it is a sparsely populated country, I suppose, um, <laughs> at least for its size. Um, okay. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, the mention of lightning just reminded me of this, and we did just mention the NHL, so it's relevant to that. Obviously, the Dallas Stars and the Tampa Bay Lightning just competed in the Stanley Cup finals um, and one music writer I can't remember who it was but I think it was Ian Cohn uh, tweeted 
uh, when a, a head one of the a headline said uh, stars defeat the lightning and uh, he said how how is this not a post rock band <laughs> I think it's very yeah, true that is very true yeah maybe I'll start that one we can be the next uh, 65 days of static okay stars Just defeat the lightning yeah <laughs> Maybe that'll be my thing, where I'm just drumming and guitaring. Just... <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to jump in for my second one here. Um, this is a film I only saw last night. Uh, it should have been a new release, actually, um, but the studio bottled it. But rather than uh, keeping it for next year, like uh, a lot of the big studios had, they sold it to Netflix. Uh, this is The Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, who's probably better known for The West Wing, uh, Social Network, and for his first di- direct, pardon me, for his directorial di- uh, debut, uh, Molly's Game, um, stars a, a, a huge ensemble: um, Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, John Carroll Lynch, jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Frank Langella. Uh, Yaha Abdul Mateen II, Mark Rylance, and Michael Keaton, and and I'm missing people there, by the way, people who you would have heard of. Um, it was orig- originally penned as a Spielberg vehicle in the late '90s, and it l- languished in development hell um, to the point where it actually turned up on a 2005 list of films you'll never see but should. Um, so it was given a five out of ten chance of ever being made. And, well, lo and behold, it eventually was. Um, It tells the story of uh, Vietnam War protesters, so it's based on on a true story, by the way, uh, on trial for inciting a riot in Chicago during 1968. So um, there's a group of what could only be described as ageing hippies uh, led by um, Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong. Uh, We have a student political group led by Eddie Redmayne, and we have a concerned citizen Boy Scout leader a group led by John Carroll Lynch. Um, the film is very much a Sorkin vehicle. Uh, anybody who's seen any of Sorkin's films or um, you know had a passing interest will know what I mean by that. Um, I think you mentioned this um, before, Michael. You've certainly mentioned it in reference to things like Infinite Jest. It's quite unfashionable to like Aaron Sorkin at the moment and there is, oh, a, is it? yeah and there's a there's there's quite a lot of scorn shown for um for finding his films or his dialogue um entertaining but I for one I, I'm still a fan I didn't know he was on the uh, the blacklist if that's what it is yeah he's um yeah he's it's um the blacklist as far as I'm, I know consists of um consists of infinite jest or david foster wallace in general um, it consists also of not David Fincher, but Fight Club specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie Kaufman and apparently Blood Meridian for some reason, which I think is the one that needles me the most. Yeah, uh, w- me too. Um, I mean, certainly Sorkin's dialogue, a little bit like Tarantino, is. Um, I was just going to say Tarantino is probably on there. Can't yeah, some people. Yeah, I mean. It's it's unmistakable, and I I can understand that it wouldn't be to everybody's taste. Um, certainly, Sorkin's famous walk and talk style, punchy, witty, very self knowing. Um, it can come across at times as a little inauthentic, um, and a little bit showy, a little bit Hollywoody. 
And I get that, but um, frankly, it's very entertaining. And um, it's matched here with some quite skillful direction, actually, which is, um, you know, I know Sorkin's been around in this game a long time, but this is only his second time directing. And he manages to uh, skillfully weave uh, the backstories of these characters and the actual riot in with the what is the main meat of the sandwich, which is the trial. Um, and it, it's never confusing. It's it's uh, it's entertaining throughout. And uh, there are some actually really good performances, not least from uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, who reportedly was having borderline panic attacks at the thought of doing an American accent, accent but not for comedic effect. Um, apparently he was given some notes by Sorkin that he just had to calm down a bit, which apparently wasn't helpful. Um, but he does a good job here. Um, his character is a, a kind of a, a showman hippie who almost narrates part of the backstory here with a stand-up routine, which apparently happened in real life. And um, he, he gives the film a real heart. Uh, and frankly, it, it there seems to be an, an intellectual battle between the left in the movie, between his side of the left and uh, Eddie Redmayne's side, which is more uh, button-down collars, let's beat them at the, at the polls kind of uh, revolutionary acts. Um, I'm not particularly familiar with this part of history, uh, certainly not the trial of the Chicago 7, uh, but instinctively, it does feel like the film is loosey-goosey uh, with with accuracy. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I would put a lot of money that it moves things around. Um, all in all, though, while it's not perfect, um, this is this is extremely entertaining and very informative. And I, I think there's no accident that a film like this, which has languished in development hell for 20 years, manages to come out in 2020. Um, to me, the timing is is no accident. It, it, it's you know, the parallels between the the kind of people we have in government. Well, America has in, and and Britain has in government now, versus what uh, people had in the late sixties, early seventies, um, are obvious. Um, and you know what? You could do a lot worse than this film. Uh, it'll entertain you for two hours, and. I think it will it will depend a little bit on how much of a taste you've got for Sorkin. Um, but like I said, I, I for one, I'm a big fan. Were you familiar with this, Michael? No, actually, no. Sounds very good, though. Um, I don't think I've seen much Sorkin, you know, actually, as it happens. Okay. Well, we, you've definitely seen The Social Network. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Um, Clive, are you are you a fan of Aaron Sorkin, or do you, are you even familiar? Um, I don't believe I'm familiar. No, um, I'm not familiar with the opinion on him. Or as neither am I really uh, familiar with the some of the other people on the blacklist that you mentioned being on the blacklist. Um, but I've always, it, I guess, that's because I'm not really on social media, and I think these kind of things kind of happen on uh, mainly on Twitter. Um, and certainly, I'm. Whereas I think when you read reviews and stuff, it's less obvious, or maybe doesn't. Uh, permeate those as much um, I think it's just interesting though because I think anyone could really criticise someone who's got a particularly unique style I think you can kind of take the mess out of it, criticise it just because that's the nature of it and it's just a matter of whether people jump on the bandwagon or not uh, in a weird way um, I think you could do it to anyone really I think you could probably do it to Bowie if you wanted um, <laughs> uh, 
it would be bollocks, but <laughs> you could you could come up with something that he always does, or some uh, weird thing about his vocal style or something. Um, which, if people really wanted to, they could jump on the bandwagon of. And I guess it's just a matter of enough people. I don't know. People seem to love to hate stuff that other people well, like. Sometimes it is. I mean, even though even though I don't agree with a lot of it, it is interesting to see how these sort of opinions develop in these sort of um, you know these social media chambers. And when when um, when there was this backlash against Kaufman's recent film, I sort of searched his name on Twitter just to see what the conversation was. And I would say there were probably about there were probably nine people in every ten, sort of saying, "Oh, I can't wait to see the new Kaufman film. Kaufman's still the king of uh, experimental cinema, etc." Mm. And then there'd be one in ten going, "Oh, I can't believe Kaufman's films are all about." You know, in cells. Can't believe I loved the Etern- Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You know, so I think I don't think it's the majority, but it is the, it's the loudest people, isn't it? Usually, think, uh, so that's uh, the way it develops. I mean, may- maybe I'm just totally making this up in my head, but the the impression I get is that somebody who is loosely considered to be cool on social media um, mm. will will make one argument. Um, based on their own personal experience with a piece of media and it catches on and then it becomes deeply uncool or deeply almost politically incorrect to like somebody. And I don't mean in the sense that, you know, Nigel Farage would call something politically incorrect when he's really just talking about something being decent. Um, I mean, in terms of if it, it almost feels like you've got, you would group in someone like Aaron Sorkin someone like um, Quentin Tarantino, um, something like David Foster Wallace, in with your dad who voted for New Labour. You know, like, he's vaguely liberal, but he doesn't mean anything. That seems to be this kind of intellectual grouping, um, which, which to me is absurd, but um, yeah. th- what would I know? I'm I'm a, I'm a millennial. We're, we're part of that grouping as well. I think um, it kind of reminds me... Uh, American Beauty is definitely a film that's on this list as well. I've just thought of it. Um, I remember when John Oliver once said American Beauty was a terrible film, which I fundamentally disagree with. Uh, but I think there is, to certain people, there'll be a pressure to agree with this opinion, and it's especially because it's tied in with this whole Kevin Spacey thing. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I first became a huge fan of American Beauty when I was about 17, and in some ways, in some cases, you might say, well, when I was younger, I liked it, but I've outgrown that. For me, it's the opposite. You know, I didn't go to that film with any agenda. It, it blew me away as to what cinema could be, and I still really like it for that reason. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not personally going to change my opinion because Kevin Spacey was in it or because a lot of people have suddenly decided it's bad cinema. I don't really buy that at all. Yeah, well, I think I think when it comes to something, somebody like Kevin Spacey, uh, not that he could he could get a gig nowadays, but I wouldn't watch anything else he he was in now. But I can't pretend I didn't like um, what he was in before. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, yeah, exactly. There's a difference. There, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think in defence of John Oliver, I don't think John Oliver thinking that um, American Beauty is a bad movie is anything to do with fashion. I think John Oliver um, just for whatever reason didn't like it. But it feels like a lot of the opinions on a lot of, I, I would say, it, it seems to be. Um, it's a, it tends to be good taste establishment that gets that gets the brunt of this, particularly uh, if it's mm. uh, rightly or wrongly perceived to be male focused. Um, oh yeah, yeah. There's definitely that to it because what I was going to mention was I think what was important about Kaufman when I searched that on Twitter was that um, 
uh, well, from what I could see at least, it wasn't just men praising him. Do you know what I mean? There was a, a mixture there, and I think it sort of it that dismantles this whole idea that his his films are for lonely men, which I think seems to be something that's recently developed. I mean, I've not I don't remember that being a thing in the past, but maybe that is because Twitter's more prominent now. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, it feels like there is a culture war, but it's not uh, that everybody seems to talk about. But it's not left versus right. It's no, it's it's a civil war. Yeah, it's <laughs> there are multiple facets, uh, multiple militia groups. Um, yeah. It's like you know Syria, Syria for culture. Um, it's <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. Um, maybe I went too far with that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's not as simple as that. And Well, the, the point is, this doesn't happen to the same extent on the right, and that's the reason that we're in the, the mess we're in, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should be more ant-like. Uh, we should follow the leader uh, at all costs. Um, <laughs> not, exa- not exactly what I'm saying, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, anyway, The Trial of Chicago 7, it's available on Netflix. If you if you like uh, your political dramas to be a bit showy, a bit Hollywoody, uh, if you don't mind that and you like the sound of that cast, which, and who couldn't, um, it's great fun. Um, let's move on. Clive, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? I did, yeah. Funnily enough, me and Al sat down last night. We were picking between Chicago 7 and this film that I'm going to talk about. So we very nearly watched Chicago 7. Um, and it sounds very interesting, so we'll probably watch it. Um, but we ended up watching My Octopus Teacher, which we randomly found, which is also on Netflix. Um, it's a 2020 Netflix original documentary film directed by Pippa Ehrlich uh, and James Reed. It stars Craig Foster, who's kind of the filmmaker who also produced the film and is the film's uh, pretty much the only person you see <laughs> in the film, really. Um, it captures the year he, Foster, spent uh, with a wild common octopus, um, which he kind of... He basically goes in every day into this this sort of ecosystem um, on... For some reason, not written it down. I'm pretty sure it's in South Africa. Um, in this, this sort of kelp forest ecosystem and a small part of it and he focuses on rather than exploring loads of different areas he wants to really get to know this kind of smallish area um, by going in every day and kind of being at one with with what's going on there um, in in the film he claims this was kind of inspired by a trip um, he was he's a photographer and I think he's mainly a photographer rather than a filmer I'm not sure could be wrong there cameraman as well um, but he went to see some trackers, I can't remember where, somewhere in the desert, I think, um, and was just, you know, amazed at how great they were at tracking animals and how they could spot things that he uh, didn't even, you know, realise were there and realise that they were key <laughs> things to track, uh, to track down these animals. And he just felt that they were so kind of at one with the, their environment and he found that inspiring and that's something that he wanted to do. Um, it's sort of at the start of the film it mentions that he started doing this because of some sort of mental health problems because of or at least as it's this is i think one of the weaknesses of it it isn't explained particularly well and essentially burnout i think because of his job i think he's working too hard and kind of lost the passion for for the camera work that he was doing and so he kind of just stopped um and and started doing this to to find a sort of purpose or whatever and it's 
beautifully shot is the first thing you've got to say about it the, the music and this footage of him in the kelp forest and his own footage um it's kind of dark gloomy almost like some weird horror sci-fi um which is as as underwater stuff stuff often is uh it's kind of just really otherworldly and doesn't really fit in with as someone you know i've never been diving i've done some snorkeling um it's just fascinating uh the stuff that goes on down there and all these weird creatures that there is and all that stuff and him just i think part part of why it's even more fascinating is he's quite um he doesn't wear a like a whatever an oxygen tank and a wetsuit even though it's like nine degrees fucking freezing he goes just in his shorts and he wears a little cap um, and just has a snorkel so he can only go down and he gets really good at um you know staying down for quite a while and being able to uh, hold his breath for ages um which i think you kind of, because you see him doing that, you feel a little bit more attached to the stuff going on. He seems a bit more part of it rather than if he's just wearing a wetsuit and tank and looks a bit robotic. Um, so I think that's definitely a big part of kind of why, why the film really works. Um, it's a mix of, or what seems to be, I've tried to figure out what it was because it's some of it's filmed so well and it's like filming him swimming. So I'm like, well, how was he doing this at the time? Uh, <laughs> but it seems like, most of the film is stuff that he shot while he was um while it, when he found this so essentially he finds an octopus um one day and kind of starts to build this relationship with the octopus and keeps going back to the octopus and uh, so kind of go follows it throughout his life um, and it it seems like he a lot of the footage is stuff that he took um which is really amazing like the way he manages to follow this octopus around um but also, I think once the project had started, he got another filmmaker involved, which I think was, um, I'm assuming, probably James Reed, who's the other uh, person who was filming. No, no, I think it's someone else. Anyway, got the name. <laughs> Forgot to mention his name. But yeah, someone else is filming it as well. And I think his son as well does some of the filming. Uh, but then I think also later on, Pippa Ehrlich, who's the director, came in to do some of the more like really gorgeous long distance him swimming around shots which are probably more reenactments than things that actually happened at the time but certainly add to the atmosphere of the film and we're in the same kelp forest and stuff so you know who cares um so yeah it's you the main thing about the out the, the film's protagonist really is the octopus um and you gain this massive respect for it um it's an animal with just this like striking intelligence um it's I mean, as with a lot of animals, it's essentially existence is to try and figure out ways to kill stuff and to figure out ways to not be killed itself. Uh, but the way it does these two things, um, even just throughout the little snippets that Craig films, um, just, it's remarkable like how it learns, oh, okay, well, that didn't work, and it'll try a different technique, and it'll work. And the way it hides is the most sort of, it's most lovable trait. It can... Obviously, octopus it can change colour. It can fit in, you know, camouflage itself on a rock. It can even like change its skin to make it look more like the rock. Like it will go spiky or smooth depending on where it is. It's pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty fabulous. But the stuff like that, which is more instinctual, it also does stuff that's just stupidly clever. Like um, when he first discovers it, he and it, this footage was actually used in Blue Planet Two, so you may have seen it. Um, and he was the first person to discover that the octopus did this it like rolls it it just picks up a load of shells and rolls itself up up in shells and covers itself in shells so it just looks like a ball of shells and you cannot tell that there's an octopus there <laughs> um and it's amazing and then it just suddenly as when the shark's buggered off it just like pops out of this um this these shells 
Um, and yeah, that was mentioned, like I say, on Blue Planet and is how he discovered the, the octopus in the first place. Um, and then there's just some other stuff, I don't want to spoil it, that it does that's just super, super clever and you're just like, that is fucking <laughs> pretty amazing. Um, and I think one of the things that makes this a little bit more special, I love Blue Planet and stuff like that, um, but I'd say this is a little bit more of a, a rounded experience because it um, it focuses just on this one animal's life and it does cover it throughout its life, um, whereas... Blue Planet and Planet Earth and all those great programs will just focus in on a snippet. This is a leopard hunting as such and such, and it will look fantastic and be amazing, but um, you won't necessarily be, you know, you don't really understand what the leopard's life is or other than this is it hunting. Uh, whereas with this particular film, you get a real idea of what the octopus's kind of day-to-day existence involve. Existence involves, and, and that's kind of puts you into it way more. Um, as I've said, the, the weaknesses to me the link with Craig's own personal struggles, which I think are important and makes it makes his kind of respect for the octopus and the way he's he kind of really puts himself into the into this world. And he's there are moments where he could definitely intervene and like help this octopus, uh, but he doesn't because he's kind of respecting um, nature to take its own course essentially. Um, and I think that's really good the way he does all that kind of stuff. There are other moments where you, he does a few things where you're like, mm, I'm not sure that's helping the octopus, but he does later on <laughs> kind of challenge himself on those points. Um, but I think that the weakness is it doesn't really mention why he started that, how it, it tries to tie in how it's helping him in his own life with certain things, which I don't think it quite summed up. <clears throat> but it, <clears throat> it did end with... Um, I was like bawling my eyes out by the end. But he ends just with this really simple and yet very kind of profound line which i'm not going to say because i think it's a bit of a spoiler and i think it's better to experience that line as part of what he's just come through um which essentially summarizes in two very short phrases what the octopus teacher taught him and i thought it was actually one of those moments where usually i think like oh you know it's a bit twee or whatever and you've just stuck some sort of quote at the end to make it seem uh, more important than it is but actually this one i was like you know what that's that is true uh, and it's something that I've not really thought about it in that way, um, so that w- was pretty great. And I don't, I can't think of many other films that have d- had that sort of effect. Um, so yeah, I would absolutely recommend *My Octopus Teacher*. I think it's great. Um, it, if only to realise just how amazing uh, octopus octopi are, um, and the, the sort of day-to-day things that they do, and the just how bloody smart they are, and and also the this sort of weird cool amazing otherworldly ecosystem that they live in and are a part of um but also because it's pretty remarkable how it you know it looks brilliant and the story at its core is pretty beautiful um and yeah so this i think this thing was like he filmed the original stuff about 10 years ago and it's finally been, I think it's been, he's attempted to make it into a thing numerous times and it's finally happened. And I'm glad it has. Um, and yeah, so I think this is definitely a something people should watch and will enjoy. It's only an hour and 25 minutes long, so it's not a massive time investment. Uh, but yeah, My Octopus Teacher was pretty great. Not flawless, like I've, I've mentioned that one flaw, but pretty damn brilliant and very uh, affecting. I saw, th- I saw this on Netflix the other day and I thought it looked interesting. Um, they are fascinating creatures. Um, octop- octopi is that the is that the right term? Yeah, I didn't. I, w- I had been calling them octopuses, <laughs> but but he calls them octopi. So I'm sure that's right, and also it sounds better actually, and it's a lot easier to say. Yeah, I mean, they are they are such a strange creature. 
I mean, hmm. you couldn't come up with anything as odd as that and yet so perfect for its environment. Um, except except maybe for the mantis shrimp. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the mantis shrimp, but it's look. I'm not gonna. It's, I'm not going to steal the limelight from the octopus, but um, look it up if you haven't. Incredible project. I will do. There's some stuff in there actually that's really interesting. Just random stuff like I'd never actually figured out how a lobster swam, and there's like bits of like lobsters escaping from the octopus, and I'm just like, what? That's how they swim. Uh, and even a crab at one point, like I just in my head, crabs just walk everywhere, but there's crab like swimming, and I was just like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and and the, the, that is kind of the magic of it. He focuses a little bit more on the while the octopus itself is like completely amazing and uh, something very abnormal he focuses on more of the the smaller stuff in the ocean that prob- probably doesn't get as much coverage shall we say <laughs> because it's not spectacular enough or something um but is in a way equally fascinating michael any thoughts on octopuses or octopi sorry <laughs> just bloody great aren't they yeah. have you ever eaten one no, no. Um, I hate seafood. I don't know if that's a fact known to listeners of this podcast. Uh, I don't know if they count as seafood, though. I mean, it feels like they should. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think they, I think they do, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I've, so I'll be giving it the swerve for that reason. Uh, my, my philosophy on uh, seafood, as I've told many people before, is basically the same as Jay's in The Inbetweeners, uh, when he says, <laughs> I'm, I'm not eating that, it's come out the fucking sea. <laughs> So, w- would you eat? Uh, would you eat a fish finger, Michael? Uh, I wouldn't want to. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I could get away with anything, I could get away with that. Okay. Um, although I, when, um, when we went to when we went to have uh, teppanyaki, I have had a, a tuna steak. That'll be the only seafood I've eaten in the last twenty years. I didn't really have any taste, so turns out if I'm going to do it, I want it cooked Japanese style, which rules out sushi because it isn't cooked. <laughs> I mean, to me, there is nothing more disgusting than sushi. I mean, why would you eat that? <laughs> I actually don't mind. I find, like, I'm not massive. In fact, I think ugh, seafood makes me sick sometimes. I don't really, generally don't like it. However, if it's not particularly fishy, I can get away with it. And I find um, sushi, in a weird way, isn't that fishy somehow, or isn't the fishy that offends me. Uh, <laughs> I guess because it's not cooked, it somehow doesn't. Or maybe just because it's not warm. I don't know. Um, yeah, so I can't, I don't. It's not my. It wouldn't be my preferred choice sushi, but I can eat it. Whereas oh. a lot of I don't wouldn't really want to eat fish. Oh. I don't know. Nicola's with you. She can't eat anything uh, f- seafood. I know quite a few people who are the same. Yeah, I'm. I'm we're not. We're not freaks. Yeah. No, you are. Um, <laughs> um, no, no, no. T- to be fair, I'm not big into eating fish, and the majority of the fish I would eat comes in batter or breadcrumbs. But um, yeah, that's fine. I, can, I like fish and chips. That's different. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'll get a bat- battered octopus on the chippy, can you? Uh, in, probably could in in Glasgow somewhere. I bet you could. Oh, in, in Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> I've seen signs when I've been, and that wasn't just an anti-Scottish jibe, by the way. I love the story. <laughs> Um, I love that you had changed it to Edinburgh, the uh, the gentrified version of serving battered octopus. Well, I, I've been into an Edinburgh f- chip shop, and there was literally a sign on the side saying, we will batter anything. <laughs> love bring it. in... Uh, I don't know, I'll have to think what to bring in. I love that we've become a culinary podcast, and it isn't about crisps as well. I know. Yeah, this is... Um, People said we were a one-trick pony. I mean, I've actually. I've, sorry, I don't know if you finished on food. I was going to actually add something else about culture. Go on then. 
<laughs> Great of you to do that. Uh, everyone, sh- everyone should go and watch a show Alex told me to watch last week. Uh, six very short episodes on Netflix, so easily consumed. Apparently coming back for a second season at some point. Uh, Tim Robinson's I Think You Should Leave. Oh, it's... Uh, yeah. A very, very entertaining sketch show. It's <laughs> okay, one of those cool. shows where if you don't like it, I'm not even going to say you're wrong, because it really does depend on your sense of humour, but if if you do like it, it it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the funniest thing you've ever seen, but yeah, it's one of those... Um. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think we've uh, I think we've come full circle, by the way, because um, we've mirrored the effect of Fiona Apple's dogs on her record. Uh, because at, at one point, I forgot to mention this when it happened earlier. I heard someone's cat. Yeah, it was Luna. She was being oh, no, that, noisy. That, that, <laughs> could, that could have been that could have been one of my two as well. Oh wow! <laughs> who, who done it? <laughs> uh, she's now sleeping here. Where she's figured she's not getting anything. Um, not for a bit. She does, I do feed her. Yeah, I, I've got a cat in the room as well. Um, she's asleep on a bed behind me, but she's on some wood. Um, don't ask me why there's wood on the bed. Um, but she's <laughs> well. So she's chosen the one bit of the bed that's rock solid rather than comfy. Um, I'll take a picture. Of I'm not sure you're going to be able to see it properly. <laughs> this is great for the listeners, isn't it? They'll never see this picture. But uh... <laughs> why don't you put it on the uh, Insta? Yeah, it's been posted on there for years. I could do Stick yeah. It on the Insta and then I was going to I was going to take a picture and offer to do that as well actually because while we, I've got my CD collection behind me while we're doing this and uh, during this I've have found what I'm sure must be the weirdest part of my CD collection. Then it's not intentionally uh, structured like this, but I'll send you that as well. Okay, <laughs> we'll okay. Send it across. We'll have to get it updated. It's quite it's quite the juxtaposition. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> because, I'm yeah. trying to think of what uh, it would be. Oh, is she on top? Of, you can't see that she's on top of some wood there, but well, she's kind of. Well, she, she did kind of move. Like her head was more directly over. It's a it's a wooden fold up chair. Her head was more directly over it when I went to take the, the picture. <laughs> she looks comfy. She's giving you some fu- a funny look, as cats do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. I'm I, I'm isolated at the minute, and uh, so I've got nothing else to do. But I still need an after pod poo, uh, so let's wrap this bad boy up. Um, let's wrap it up the only way we know how, and there's only one man who knows how. Clive. It must be plug time. Follow us on at Stick Around Cast on Twitter slash Stick Around Podcast on Facebook. Stickroundpodcast.com on the interwebs where you can find every single episode ever that we've done, including one which is something and biscuits. I always forget the full name. Uh, um, and you can find other stuff, articles on there by all us three. My 90, 60s to the 2020 best albums of each year challenge on there. Um, 74 was the last one. I'm still working on 75. It's taken me a while. Um, but it will be done hopefully in a week or two. I'm hoping to get the in to get the seventies finished by the end of the year. That's my sort of target. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, you can also email us at stickaroundpodcast at gmail You can contact us if you go on the website. Click on contact us. You can find us on pretty much any podcast app, including Spotify. Just type in stick around, and we should come up. Uh, give us a follow on there. But best of all, give us five star on the iTunes. Or tell your friends. 
and then oh do both put five give us five stars on iTunes tell your friends and then tell them to give us five stars and then tell us you did that and we'll love you forever might send you a uh, we don't have any merch but if we ever get some merch we'll send you some <laughs> I still say we need to put all the 161 episodes onto CDs uh, start selling them physically <laughs> tap into this I really think... niche hipster market that Michael is a forerunner in can Michael be the like storage place for these hundred? We should just have one version of each well, of them. I mean, I mean I've can got, stay in Michael's. <laughs> I've got about ninety CDRs. Are you on the floor next to me? <laughs> okay, perfect. That's good. I don't even use them because I got them when I had a CD player in my car, and I don't in the new car. Oh, oh okay. No. <laughs> yeah, the only time they get car. the only time they get used is when me and Alex come to Sheffield and we play it in his car on the way. <laughs> so you've got time ninety we, mixes. <laughs> Last time we came in my car, so we're talking about a once in every three years average, which means these CDs will last 270 years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Great. Well, we better put them to- And CDs put- will still be being used 270 years <laughs> from now. That's that's my prediction. They will in your household. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's kids are just going to be like, no, <laughs> get off Spotify. You've got fight, your own Spotify. Fighting the good fight. Yeah, Michael, I think you'll just, be very unlucky if at no point having CDs becomes cool again. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Like vinyl. Yeah, I, even even cassettes have started to come back. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they're only being sold like niche, but people they they have come back though. Are you getting annoyed yeah. then that CDs are yet to make that kind of comeback? Well, the only reason they haven't made that comeback is because they haven't gone anywhere, isn't it? So. <laughs> also, they don't have a lot of the a lot of the vinyl tape movement is uh, chan- charged by analog snobbery. Um, mm, yeah. That people who insist analogs a lot better, and that yeah. digital is the devil. Um, but they don't realise <laughs> that pretty much all modern music is recorded digitally and then turned analog. But I'm not going to go there. Um, oh, you just, you just went there. <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> I fucked it. Sorry. <laughs> Well, I've kind of caved. I mean, uh, I don't. Think, um, I mean, I've told you to this, but uh, I accidentally bought a vinyl. I didn't accidentally buy a vinyl. Amazon sent me a vinyl in error, and I kept it because I fell in love with it. And it's obviously I've made a saving by doing that. Um, sorry, Jeff, if you're listening. Uh, but I am. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure I'm now trying. planning to get an. Uh, I'm now planning to get a vinyl player. So uh, you know, I've crossed over the dark side. Oh, wow. How do you feel about the fact that you've taken nine dollars off a? Jeff Bezos is pretty good. Worth. How was Jeff, pretty good about How that. was Jeff going to eat? Come on. He's got a family I mean, man. I'm probably, I mean, I'm sorry to admit this, but I'm probably heavily responsible for lining his pockets, the amount of money I must have spent on Amazon. Um, you know, I would not be sat here talking about music if it wasn't for Amazon, so got to admit that. Well, thanks, feel, feel, feel like I need a shower now. <laughs> <laughs> well... You heard him. He needs to go and wash the metaphorical filth from his body. Um, and the actual filth. Oh, wow, great. He's, he's actually dirty. Uh, uh, he's been Michael that, Johnson. That was a joke. I have. He's been Clive Fisher. I have. And I've been Alex Wayne. Um, come back next time where we'll discuss more things and next time I won't be locked down. I might even do it from the park next time just because... <laughs> I'm so desperate to get outside. Um, I've just got images of the IT crowd when Moss is sat with a headset on playing video games in the park. Uh, that's, that's what I'm picturing. 
I could just like you're setting up your mic out there, and then maybe like a pigeon will come along and start fucking out. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make this happen. What if you're locked down again for some unre- unknown reason that has nothing to do with the pandemic? Oh, God knows. I don't know. I don't know how I'll cope. Um, I don't even <laughs> want to think about that. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening, and remember to stick around. Stick around. Stick around. Toodles. Thank you all for listening Rest assured that you have found The best podcast in the universe It's Stick Around